My name is Sam Jackson. I'm an assistant professor in the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity at the University at Albany. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University, these conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. Thanks for making the time, Sam. Good to speak to you. I want to just jump right into it. You wrote a book on the Oath Keepers, published three or four months, I believe, before the insurrection, before the Oath Keepers became more of a household name. How did you know? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. The universe conspired to make me more prominent than I have a right to be, I guess. It's funny thinking about how I have chosen topics over the past few years and the important role that mentors have played for me in that process. So when I was working on my PhD, choosing my dissertation topic, I was trying to decide between two topics. One would be the Oath Keepers, and my PhD dissertation ended up being basically the rough draft of the book. And the other topic I was thinking about was a group called the Alaska Peacemaker Militia. If I was in a room full of students, this is where I would ask them to raise your hand if you've ever heard of Oath Keepers, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Alaska Peacemaker Militia, and no one will have heard of the second one. I have to give a a big thank you to some of my mentors in my PhD times for directing me to think about Oath Keepers rather than this even more obscure group. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? It's almost like writing a book about the pandemic in January 2020 or writing a new book on Ukraine and Russia just a couple months ago. But it's a great book. And you really dig into not only the history, but the ideology of this particular group and, and sort of the broader movement. How did you end up looking at these groups? How did you decide that this was going to be your thesis? What's wrong with you? (laughs) That's a great question. What's wrong with me? Why would I do this to myself? So when I was an undergrad, I was a religious studies major at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. I accidentally took a class on religion and violence. It was a required course for majors. I think it was something like methods and theories for understanding religion. And the person who was teaching it decided that she was going to do a little experiment and focus the substance on religion and violence as a way of talking through method and theory. Shout out to Dr. Hackett from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So I took that class and this would have been 2007 or 2008. So you can imagine that a lot of the readings were jihadi terrorism. There was some stuff on Christian extremism in the U.S., a lot about anti-abortion violence. There was stuff about Buddhist terrorism, Jewish terrorism, and, you know, all of the forms of religious terrorism and extremism. What I didn't see was a particular form of conservative extremism in the U.S. that I seemed to notice around me, which was anti-government in nature. And it was about legitimating not just attacks against individuals who have the wrong characteristics, but about the government more broadly. So I didn't quite know how to turn my burgeoning interest in this form of extremism into a career. I knew I wanted to work more with my brain than with my hands, but I didn't really know what that meant. Luckily for me, I got on the phone with a gentleman you'll never have heard of named Mark Picavage from the Anti-Defamation League. Before I started my PhD, actually before I was considering doing a PhD to ask him how people get into this professional area of monitoring these types of extremism and analyzing them and all that kind of stuff. 
And as part of that conversation, he told me, you need to read David Bennett's Party of Fear. It is the go-to book on the far right in the U.S. from a historical perspective. So I Googled David Bennett and found out he was at Syracuse and then found this weird little PhD program that the Syracuse Maxwell School has decided to apply there. And I ended up working under Michael Barkin, who's my primary advisor at Syracuse. And I knew I was interested in right-wing extremism and particularly forms of extremism that organized around a perceived national identity rather than a racial identity or an ethnic identity or something like that. And I started my PhD program in the fall of 2013, which meant that not too far into that program, I saw Oath Keepers at Bundy Ranch and all of those things. So I think it's something that I just increasingly noticed and increasingly thought existing research on the far right in the U.S. doesn't really explain this. Right. So that's what kind of led me down that road. Were there any other options? What is Sam Jackson not doing that he could have been doing had he not taken that religion and violence class? Yeah. Boy, interesting coincidence being on the ADL's podcast here. I actually, before I was thinking about doing a PhD, I applied to different master's programs. And one of the programs I got into was McGill University's Judaic Studies program, where I was going to study Hasidic folk tales. I was really into Buber's Tales of the Hasidim, and I just thought it was a really fascinating narrative form. So I was going to study that, and wow, <laughs> my how things changed. Very interesting. I feel like everybody I talk to, they're like, it's kind of an accident, right? Just something sort of brings you here. Although it sounds like your intellectual curiosity, right? About what is around you ultimately played a big role, right? If you weren't just fundamentally interested in that. Well, I'm glad you sort of chose this. And then the other stuff sounds good. I could put you in touch with some folks who I think probably know more about that, certainly than I. For folks who are still trying to understand what the Oath Keepers are all about, why they're on TV or in their newspapers every day. Can you talk a little bit about who are the people that are joining this group and why? It's an interesting way to frame that question. Normally, I would try to beg off this question a little bit because most of my research has focused on the group and thinking about the group as a single actor rather than thinking about the rank and file people who join the group. One of the things that I've emphasized is if we distinguish between leaders in a group like Oath Keepers versus the rank and file, there are some really important distinctions we can make. For one, prominent people within the group are much more ideologically on point or ideologically disciplined. They are thinking about a narrower set of ideas and they're talking about them in a more cohesive and coherent way. Whereas rank and file members of the group might have any of a wide range of ideological motivations to join or even non-ideological motivations. So we can think about the group itself as being what I describe as an anti-government extremist group that is part of the far-right patriot slash militia movement, really concerned about what it sees as tyranny coming from government and the appropriate mm -hmm. responses to that tyranny. But the rank and file members might not have that similar focus. So the sort of flexibility that's built into a lot of groups like Oath Keepers means that even though Oath Keepers is not organized around racial identity, someone who is motivated by some racial identity might join Oath Keepers because they see it as a way for them to pursue their ideological goals. So the Oath Keepers, there seems to be two inflection points where they get far more aggressive, perhaps in 2014, in the Bundy Ranch, five years after they formed, and then in the summer of 2020. Do you agree with the premise that those are sort of two key moments where they ended up becoming more aggressive or are there others and what are they and why 
what is it about these moments where they seem to be able to gather more steam, get more support, and engage in more action? So Oath Keepers launched as an organization in April 2009. And for the next couple of years, they didn't really do a whole lot that was high profile that got them public attention. They did sort of the organizational work that any sort of organization has to engage in in early days in terms of recruiting a support base and membership and defining what the group is beyond just the talking points. But like, this is the kind of thing that we do. In 2014 was really the group's entrance onto the public stage with the Bundy Ranch standoff. Clive and Bundy was a rancher in Nevada who grazed his cattle on federal lands. For something like 20 years, he refused to pay required fees in order to graze his cattle on federal lands. After years of legal action winding its way through different court systems and different appeals and all of this, a federal judge ordered the Bureau of Land Management to confiscate some of Bundy's cattle in lieu of over $1 million that Bundy owed the federal government. In response to that court order, Clive and Bundy said, so-called patriotic Americans come to my ranch and help me fight off this example of government tyranny, of them taking my property from me. And a whole bunch of people came to his ranch to help him, including a bunch of Oath Keepers. Stuart Rhodes was there. Richard Mack, who was on the board of directors at the time, was there. A number of other individuals were there as well. And so this aggressive action... Is it baked into the DNA of the Oath Keepers, or are they responding to sort of changing environment? In other words, there had to be some sort of baseline in their ideology that would then enable them to show up when the moment arises. Is that fair? And you talk a little bit about the fundamental willingness to engage in aggressive action as part of their belief system. Absolutely. So there's a two-part belief that underlies Oath Keepers as an organization. The first is the belief that government in America either is already tyrannical or is rapidly becoming tyrannical and will be in the very near future. And that government is primarily the federal government, but in some cases, state or even local government as well. So there's the perception of tyranny or impending tyranny. And the second part of that two-part belief is a perception that those that the group believes are patriots need to be ready to resist that tyranny by whatever means necessary. So one of the things that I hope that my book accomplishes is, is kind of laying out how Oath Keepers justifies that resistance to tyranny and how it identifies what the appropriate responses to tyranny are. And the main way that it does this is by thinking about what I describe as the stories of moments of conflict and crisis from American history. So they look back to the nation's history and say, what are the times when we've faced huge threats? How have so-called patriots responded to those threats? And how can we learn from their example and apply it to America today? And the biggest parallel that Oath Keepers likes to talk about is resistance to the British government when the nation was founded in the late 18th century. So I think it is very fair to say that aggressive action, if not just flat out violence, is really baked into the group. They spend a decent bit of time trying to build the ideas and rhetoric that make violence seem justifiable, if not righteous. And they do so by pointing to that resistance to British government. They say, would-be American patriots resisted the British by taking up arms after these provocations. We're seeing similar provocations today, so maybe it's time for us to take up arms as well. And were you seeing this play out in specific ways throughout the summer of 2020 or before? Pre-insurrection, what were you seeing that spoke to this as the next inflection point? Hard for me to remember in hindsight how much 
I saw J6 coming and how much I was caught off guard like everyone else. So with hindsight, I'll tell you what I can see now. 2016 was actually a really important inflection point for the group where they started to undergo this transition. From 2009 to early 2016, overwhelmingly, the group talked about the federal government as being tyrannical, as being the primary threat that everyday Americans face to their life, their liberty and happiness and all those good things. Starting in 2016 with the candidacy and then presidential victory of Donald Trump, the group increasingly talked about those Americans who were opposed to Trump as the greatest threat facing America. In some ways, this seems like a contradiction or at least a huge pivot, but in reality, what they're still doing is they're identifying core American values and identifying threats to those core American values. So what we saw in 2009 to 2016, for example, is Rhodes would say things like martial law is going to be the means by which the federal government unjustly cracks down on the rights of Americans who dissent from government. From 2016 to 2020, we see Oath Keepers increasingly identify those American dissidents as a threat to the nation. And by 2020, Rhodes is then saying, hey, President Trump, you should declare martial law in order to violate the rights of American dissidents. So we do see some pretty stark pivots in that way. That's a really important way of explaining how they changed. Is it to fit this broader ideology that they have? All extremist movements do this, right? When they see something change, they need to change with it. They adapt to the reality. What you just described is a pretty stark pivot. How is that able to be understood and accepted by followers? I mean, are people not calling BS on this? Yeah, I think there are a couple of ways that people who are supportive of or were supportive of Oath Keepers in the 2009 to 2016 period could keep their support moving forward after we see these dramatic pivots. One is the sort of deep state conspiracy theory. It's not that the president is necessarily the problem with government. The problem is government overall being the problem. So I've started talking about that 2016 to 2020 period as Oath Keepers didn't move away from their anti-government extremism. They just temporarily had an ally in their fight against tyrannical government sitting in the White House. They still had this deep state to oppose. And something that has also been a through line is Oath Keepers describes this form of American politics that sees evil intentioned elites fighting against the righteous patriotic Americans. And there's this big middle group in between those two, which is all of those people who have been duped by those evil intentioned elites. So there's space in that ideological framework for them to identify other Americans as a problem maybe in and of themselves, maybe just because they have bought into the lies, supposed lies of the evil elite. The other trend that I think helps us understand this is we can connect Oath Keepers to some historical precedents for this form of extremism and this style of extremism in the John Birch Society. Hmm. And Oath Keepers even explicitly links to the modern JBS website on its own website, or at least they did back in the day, five years ago. So we can see that there are some through lines of anti-communism and the identification of anything that strikes Oath Keepers as insufficiently authentically American as communist, which is why we see Rhodes saying that BLM and Antifa are a global communist insurgency or something like that. And, you know, since January 6th, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys have been the groups most targeted by the Department of Justice. I imagine that's not going to make them feel any better about government. But can you talk a little bit about how this has had an impact 
on the Oath Keepers, on its leadership. This is the first time where their actions have met some accountability, I think because of just how significant what we saw on January 6th was. So what are you seeing now? And do you think anything that you're seeing now will have an impact on the way they may pivot again in the future, right? You've already given an example of how they pivoted before. Will they pivot again? How is this impacting them? I guess the first thing I need to say is that I haven't been following the group granularly the same way I was when I was working on the book. So a lot of my observations on this come from seeing what journalists have to say about this stuff and what other analysts have to say. In the short-term aftermath of J6, we already started to see some patterns emerge of different responses from people who are Oath Keepers members or supporters to the group's involvement in J6 and to the group more broadly. So we saw some people who sort of revoked their membership or renounced their membership and said, I didn't realize this was the type of organization that Oath Keepers was. I don't want to be involved in this. We saw other people who said J6 was a false flag. Those people who were wearing Oath Keepers gear, they were actually Antifa or feds or something like that. The Oath Keepers organization that I know would never do such a thing. I still proudly support them for what they really are and not what this false flag tries to depict them as. We see another group of people who are saying the J6 activities were a righteous set of activities and American patriots who tried to defend the Constitution and the Republic on that day were temporarily defeated by the deep state. You know, you can imagine these ramblings happening at various rallies and such. So we've seen this full gamut of things from people renouncing their membership to people staying in. And some journalists even found that a handful of people signed up for the group for the first time after J6. As we've continued to move further from that event, we've seen more and more public information coming out in legal filings and charging documents and those sorts of things that reveal the different ways that members of the group planned for the J6 activities and then were involved in the day. And of course, Stuart Rhodes is currently in pretrial detention, waiting to be tried on seditious conspiracy charges. His status is interesting in particular for some weird reasons. So he's the president and founder of the group, and his role as president of the group for life is written into the group's bylaws as filed with the Nevada Secretary of State, unless he resigns or is found incompetent by the board of directors. He is currently not resigned to my knowledge, nor has he been found incompetent by the board of directors, but he's in pretrial detention, right? So he can't really do that day-to-day -day organizational work. So we've seen some people claim to be in interim leadership roles. The person I'm thinking of here is Kelly Sorrell, I think is how you say her name. She stepped up and said she would be the interim president for a while. She's also the general counsel for Oath Keepers. But when Rhodes was denied bail, I think in February, Sorrell announced that someone else would be taking over as interim leader. So one of the outstanding questions of interest to me is what happens to the group after Rhodes's trial? You know, you can imagine him being convicted and that sets up one set of conditions. You can also imagine him being exonerated and that sets up another set of complicated conditions. And both of those could contain members of the group finding out new things about Rhodes as part of the trial and saying, we don't want to be associated with this jerk. Or it could be like the information we found exonerates him and we believe him to be the patriotic man. We always knew that he was and we'll follow him to the death or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that suggests that no matter what happens with any individual people within the Oath Keepers, whether, you know, Rhodes and its leadership or others that are currently going to be facing trial, 
the ideology still resonates, right? I mean, yeah. that's something that we know we can expect. The yeah. ideas of government overreach and grievance and how that animates people, whether it's under the Oathkeeper moniker or something else, you know, there's a whole range of different groups to choose from that that's not going to go away. I think it's really yeah. important to recognize Oath Keepers as an example of a broader trend in American politics and to not get too hung up on the group. For example, the difference between joining an Oath Keepers chapter or joining your local 3%er group might come down to where your friends are or who has the presence at the VFW hall you visit or the gun range that you visit. There's not a whole lot of ideological space between those two groups or movements, if you like. So I don't think that even if Oath Keepers as an organization were to collapse in the aftermath of the upcoming trials, I don't think that changes the broader landscape of anti-government extremism in the U.S. Perfect point. This is a bit of a different question. You know, given that extremists that you have studied, you know, ultimately want to uproot elements of society or destroy certain things that we hold dear, is there actually an aspect of culture or society that you actually truly appreciate more now that you see what they're trying to burn down? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm kind of a cynic and a pessimist by nature. So <laughs> I'm not instantly like, oh yeah, I appreciate this. It's actually interesting the ways that studying this has led me to be more critical in some ways of our broader political culture. Hmm. So one of the leading thinkers for the Three Percenters movement, a guy who died a couple of years ago, Michael Vanderbilt, he spent a lot of brain space trying to draw parallels between his anti-government extremist movement and the civil rights movement, arguing that that civil rights movement in some ways relied on violence, just as his did. And my first reaction to that is like, no, Martin Luther King, pacifist, nonviolence was the thing. But then I start reading more scholarship on the civil rights movement to understand where this comparison is coming from. And I see that it's more complicated than that. In fact, what we see is there was this nonviolent actor who was surrounded by a constellation of people who were like, don't mess with our dude or we're going to respond in kind. And then there were other constellations of civil rights movement actors who were like, forget all this nonviolence stuff. I am defending my family and my property with my guns if I need to. So one thing I have learned about the broader American political culture, if you like, by studying these groups is we tell ourselves fictions about, again, those moments of conflict and crisis from American history that kind of define who we are as a nation and as a people. And in some ways, those fictions that we tell ourselves are aspirational, I think. We want to be the kind of place where a purely nonviolent political advocacy organization can have dramatic outcomes and can defeat long-standing institutions of prejudice and bigotry and harm. But the reality is more complicated, and we need to remember that reality if we're trying to actually achieve outcomes. It's difficult, right? Because part of this not being just sort of academic work, at least that we do at ADL, right? I mean, it's advocacy. You do have to sort of pick a side in a way, like fighting Nazis back in the day, doing so nonviolently wouldn't have been effective. Right. But I believe there's a difference between fighting the Nazi regime versus the type of justification used for violence today to undermine our democratic institutions. The approach may be similar. The language, to your point, may be similar. Yeah. But the values are different. And I think no matter how many times they may compare it to civil rights. That's what's also alluring, I think, about their message in a weird way, right? It's ironic in a sense, but I think you're making an important point. Do you find that you are sort of academic 
trying to shed light and understanding onto this? Or do you see your role as, you know, professor and author as activism in any way? So scholars sometimes think about ideal types, and we think about these pure categories that help us understand behavior, even though none of the behavior clearly falls into those ideal types, those pure categories. So we might think about activist scholarship as being an ideal type, and we might think of disinterested scholarship as being another ideal type. And I think rarely can we actually place scholars into one of those two buckets cleanly. My work is motivated by a desire to understand people who I think are bad for the world. If an outcome of my research was that fewer people joined Oath Keepers or that prosecutions of Oath Keepers were more successful, I would be happy with that. On the other hand, I try to be, I guess disinterested is the best word that I can use in my analysis. I'm not trying to normatively undermine the group in my writing for the most part. Some of my public facing writing is more like pointing out the contradictions and pointing out the ways in which they're bad for democracy. But the bulk of my book is really trying to understand how Oath Keepers rhetorically positions itself to understand their outcomes. I would be very happy if my disinterested explanation of their framing techniques means that those framing techniques are no longer as successful as they were, but that's not necessarily the primary goal of my work. Understood. Where can listeners go to learn more about your work? They can certainly buy my book. If you buy it from Columbia University Press, use discount code CUP30, C-U-P-30 for a discount, and then you don't have to support the evil empire, et cetera. And just for those who can't see, he had to pull the book off the shelf to remember the title. Oath Keepers, Patriotism and the Edge of Violence in a Right-Wing Anti-Government Group from Columbia University Press. If you want to see what I'm up to these days, you can follow me on Twitter at S-J-A-C-K-S-S-Jax-2-6. One last question. Sam Jackson, very, very popular name within the broader entertainment world. Anybody ever confuse you for uh, Snakes on the Plane guy? I doubt anyone has ever genuinely confused me. Anyone who has seen my picture would be hard-pressed to confuse me with uh, too many snakes on this plane. But actually, the first interaction I had on the University of Tennessee campus when I was an undergrad was something to the effect of a riff on my name. I'm just saying, with the name Sam Jackson, you could have written a book called The Motherfucking Oath Keepers. <laughs> and I'm thinking, anyway. Maybe that'll be uh, the follow-up. <laughs> right. Sam, really appreciate you taking the time, really appreciate the work that you do and through your scholarship, shedding light on a really important topic that unfortunately we're going to be dealing with for many years to come as we try to fight those who want to undermine our democratic institutions. So really appreciate your work and you spending a little time with me. Yeah, my pleasure. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and education that enables law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import, 
This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, PERIL. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.